SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hi, this is Matt Bradley Shirky, host of the SequelCast 2 podcast. And this episode is going to start with a brief question I asked Carl Urban at a live panel. That's right, Carl Urban, actor of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Chronicles of Riddick, uh, Star Trek, uh, the new Star Trek series of movies. He's uh, Dr. McCoy and so forth. So I asked him a question about special effects, which is pretty neat. And then after that, we'll continue with the main program on the original Expendables film. Enjoy. All right. Hey, dude, how are you? Hey, good. Um, so, so I was wondering, in a lot of these movies, you have to do um, acting against green screen. What do you do to keep your imagination active while you're involved in that and you can't really see what's going on around you? Well, uh, you know, I guess I actually have been pretty fortunate that a lot of the movies that I've done, they have actually gone to the lengths to, you know, create a, you know, a, a huge proportion of the set. I mean, Lord of the Rings, uh, it wasn't like the experience they had on The Hobbit where they were on a soundstage, you know, and I think you can actually see that uh, in the movie. Um, there's nothing that you can, nothing replicates actually being on location. And, and that's part of what makes, you know, Lord of the Rings, I think, so great. Middle Earth is a character in that movie. Um, but, uh, you know, dealing with elements that aren't there are just really part and parcel of the job, whether, you know, you're dealing with, uh, you're working with a, a baby who's only on set for a, 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 a couple of hours, and so they shoot the baby first, and then when it comes to your footage, you're delivering it to a tennis ball. Uh, <laughs> That's quite common, but it's just it's just part of it, and um, you know it's uh, yeah that's just it's just uh, it's it's part of the job, I guess. I don't really think about it too much because you know as an actor you just spend your time thinking about being in the moment, and um, yeah. But you know, and even Star Trek, you know, really they built that you know amazing Enterprise set, and you know the only thing that was really green screen there was the viewing screen, mm. uh, and the rest of it was was all there and again you know it wasn't like you know uh, George Lucas's last three Star Wars movies where those guys literally were in a green room and the rest was painted in it wasn't so I haven't worked like that before really and um, yeah I feel pretty blessed for it thank you Big Bonnie Ross. Bigger Trent Mouse. What are you doing? Praying for Brooke? Could be. Have you been sick? You lost weight. Really? Now, whatever weight I lost, you found, pal. <laughs> you guys aren't going to start sucking each other's dicks, are you?
Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies that a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky, with me as Thrasher. Hey, brother, don't you ever sleep? You know, I think you uh, you should have a tattoo of uh, like Charlotte's Web Spider on your on your bald forehead. That'd look pretty cool. Yeah, we're talking about The Expendables, uh, the first of a trilogy, kicking off our conversation on that series. Uh, came out in 2010, directed by Sylvester Stallone, produced by Avi Lerner, John Thompson, Kevin Keen Templeton. Screenplay by David Callahan and Sylvester Stallone, based off a story by David Callahan. This stars a, uh, a who's who of, of action stars from past and present. Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham, Jet Li, Dolph Lundgren, Randy Couture, Steve Austin, Terry Crews, Mickey Rourke, and Bruce Willis, with music by Brian Tyler, cinematography by Jeffrey Kimball, and edited by Ken Blackwell and Paul Herb. Off a budget, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, of $80 million, this made $274.5 million worldwide. So was uh, you know Stallone in his 60s kicking off a new franchise... And uh, this did really well for him. And after, you know, this was released after he did Rambo 4 and Rocky 6. And to try and do a kick off a new franchise in your 60s as an action movie star is quite um, ambitious. And we'll talk about whether this worked or not with this first film. Um, Thrasher, what did you think? Uh, when did you first watch The Expendables? Was it for the show or had you seen it before? I had, I had uh, about maybe two or three years ago had, uh, while visiting relatives, had walked in on the movie about halfway through, but I was kind of doing other things and didn't really get into it, so I did not see this movie from beginning to end until last night. Great, yeah, when, when I was watching it, um, I was, I'm a big Stallone fan, as listeners of the show might have figured out, and we, um, this came out the same weekend as my wedding, and a lot of my best men at the wedding, um, the ones local to Oregon, not you and Jersey Jason Thrasher, went to see it after the uh, reception for a midnight show. And I wish, I, in some ways, I it would have been fun to go with them, even though I had just gotten married, but I didn't. So um, I did not watch it until um, it was on video, and then later I picked up the director's cut. And then this specific version I, I watched to prep for the show was just the theatrical cut, but I'll talk about some of the differences. It's not a huge difference. Um, it should be noted the director's cut is not called director's cut, it's called the extended cut, which seems to be the latest nomenclature for that. For the extendables. The, the extendables, yeah. Um, in, uh, in high school, <laughs> my, my buddies uh, Greg and Zach and I, I had my little Hi8 Sony consumer camera, and uh, I was obsessed with Planet of the Apes. We made a parody called uh, Five Little Short Films called the Orangia Saga, which is a planet of orange people. <laughs> or, or something, or no, they had pillows on their head, they're called pillow people, but the planet was in orange, uh, called Orangia, and um, there's a line in Rambo, First Blood Part 2, where he goes, we're just expendable, and we did a spoof of that called, oh, and a line that says, we're just expandable, and then we switched to the um, fat people mode on the camera. What, it made a fat day. people mode on the Basically, camera? Basically, yes, yeah, it wasn't called fat people mode, but it, it just made everything wide and distorted, like you're looking through one of those... Uh, mirrors in a funhouse. Oh, oh, it was a distortion effect. I, distortion I, I effect, was really yes. confused. Yeah, no, no, it was not. It did not make fat people look skinny or vice versa. But, um, and actually, yeah, that line in Rambo: First Blood Part Two is why this is called the Expendables. Hmm. Um. So, the uh, I, I think I really dislike the font on this poster. I'm normally not that nitpicky about fonts. But it's this generic metallic sheen um, with like a 
backlight behind it. Oh, well, it's it's those it's like those three D titles that were really popular around this time. That's true. Yeah, where the ambient lighting effect for the scene is reflected on the subtitles. Yeah, you know, it's it's just as annoying as a lens flares in a J.J. Abrams film or something. But yeah, well, it's and, so weird because there's so much tattoo and biker imagery in this. You'd think. Why, why not? Why not have like expendables as it appears on their motorcycles or something like that? If this is going to be a franchise, treat it like a brand. Keep those images uh-huh. consistent. Well, and I do think it's classy. It's a black and white photo of the cast all posed together. Like I think that's pretty cool. Um, well, the black and white works in its favor. It, it does, and it, it. I think, frankly, you know, everyone looks better uh, filmed or shot in black and white. And and these guys are older for the most part, right? <laughs> so you want to. Uh, <laughs> Make them look as good as possible, and it, 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 I think the cast itself is a good mix of action stars from the heyday and modern, mainly people that used to be in like wrestling or sports and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it, it was gr- it was great seeing uh, Steve Austin in this film, although I really wish he had been playing a hero. Yeah, and Steve Austin almost paralyzed Sylvester Stallone, but we'll we'll get into that um, on the set of this. So, The Expendables. Before we get into it, I mentioned sort of the box office, and I, I like talking numbers. What do you think about um, how this did in the box office in the United States? Because I, mean, I gave you the world, I give you the worldwide gross, but I'll give you a hint. In the United States, it made just north of a hundred million in twenty ten. I mean, that's not that's not shabby. It, I mean, no. it, it's it's a profitable it's a profitable film, and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of the budget was eaten up just getting all of these actors signed. Yeah. Um, so where do you think that places in the top 100 or whatever for 2010? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to remember what else came out that year. But so I guess the, the, main, the, the big hits of 2010 were like Toy Story 3, uh, Tim Burton's horrendous Alice in Wonderland movie. Oh, then I'll, uh, th- then I'll say this place sixth. Uh, that's not a bad guess. It was actually uh, number 28, and this shows how the box up more people were going to the theater uh, in 2010, you know, eight years ago as of this recording. In fact, in 2010, for whatever reason, 30 of the top 100 grossing domestic films grossed over $100 million, which is quite astonishing, if Hmm. you compare that to sort of modern uh, box office statistics. But Expendables was number 28. Above it, at number 27, Chronicles of Narnia 3, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I forgot that even came out. Yeah, I Um, completely missed that one. Yeah. Uh, At number 29, uh, below it was Due Date, which I assume is a romantic comedy or something. Um... But yeah, biggest films of that year were Toy Story 3, Alice in Wonderland, and Iron Man 2. And I even pulled up the international box office, and The Expendables was um, right around there, like at, almost at the exact same placement, at number 27, with the worldwide gross of $274 million. Between this and Iron Man 2, this is a big year for Mickey Rourke. That's true, I forgot he was in Iron Man 2, yeah, because this was a few years after he made a, a comeback of sorts... In the Wrestler, which I thought was an excellent film, um, had you seen that one? No, regrettably, I have not. Ah, it was a, a drama um, that about sort of a, a an old over the hill wrestler trying to do one last match despite his bad health and sort of uh, reconnecting with a, a distant daughter. And it's uh, really well done. And he does a really you know full blooded dramatic performance. And here, I mean, this is a, a small part, and it's a. Uh, but Mickey Work is good in this picture, and it's a shame he's not in any of the sequels. Hmm. Which is weird. He is kind of the heart of this movie. I, I think so. And even though he's just like, he used to be part of the team, now he's just sort of chilling, 
doing tattoos, but there's a lot of uh, character to his scene. I mean, his his tattoo parlor, and to some extent, like the bar, is a character in the film by itself. And that that's part of the appeal of these movies is you get rare scenes where everyone is together, and it's not action scenes; they're just kind of bullshitting with each other. And I wish I wish there are more. There were more of those moments. Those those character yeah, moments yeah. were my favorite part of the film. Just about any anything or everything else was very rote action, but also kind of kind of cheap rote action. Like there are corners uh-huh. cut in this film, and I'll talk about those as we go through it. Yeah, there is. You know, this is uh, as of this recording, twenty eighteen. Uh, this is the most recent film Stallone has directed. You know, unlike Schwarzenegger, he's directed a lot of his films and is involved in writing and, and is more of an auteur, if I may use such a word. Um, I know people don't always like that term, but I enjoy it. Um, and it, it it just feels like... I thought Rocky Balboa was a much better directed film than this movie. I think you're right. Like, it does feel kind of rote. On the other hand, I enjoy uh, kind of the video game Gears of War nature of some of the shots near the end where <laughs> y- you have uh, Terry Crews with a big gun and it's like over-the-shoulder third person, and, like, he turns to shoot towards a tower, and it blows up, and he turns and shoots towards another tower, and it blows up as well. Like, I think you have some fun moments, but on the other hand, I I wish overall this movie would be more inspired, but I think um, before talking about the film proper, do you want to talk about the cast a little bit, what we thought about it? Yeah, the cast was, like, half fantastic and and half-wasted. Okay. Um, I was, I was really looking forward to this movie, if only because so many you know action stars I really liked are in it, and I was so disappointed that Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger are relegated to brief cameos. Hmm. Like, if you're going to get all three of those guys on screen, we might as well see... They, there needs to be a hero shot of the three of them fighting back-to-back. I kept hoping they were going to zip line in at the end of the movie <laughs> and help Stallone and his crew out. Yeah, they, they, it's literally... Uh... A dialogue scene. I think was Schwarzenegger still governor at the time. No, I think his term have been right had afterwards. Ended, but okay, but this depending on the timeline, this may have been filmed while he was in office. Right, and there's a very jokey line of dialogue where it's like, "Oh, he wants to be president." It's just, oh, it's awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, most of the attempts at humor in this movie are pretty awful. <laughs> Well, this is quite interesting, because I find this movie like more dour than some of the sequels, so as we discuss the series in the weeks to come, it'll be very interesting to get your reaction uh, against mine, because they they kind of um, shift around with, with the tone towards drama or humor. Uh, on the other hand, you know, something I think that's more successful is Jason Statham as with stupidly named Lee Christmas. Like, all the names in this movie are just dumb, but... Jason yeah, Statham is Stallone. Lee as Yin Yang. Is there a less? Oh, oh, I, I have a story. I have for... a story about that. Oh. So uh, I listened to an interview with Stallone, and he says people give him shit for calling Jit Lee Yin Yang and how that's racist. And the um, the original name in in the Stallone script was was something else, and Jet Li didn't like it and said, "Can we call him something else?" And Stallone is like, "Like what?" And Jet Li's like, "Yin Yang." And Stone oh, really? says, you, yeah, and Stone says, you went yin-yang? He's like, yes. He's like, okay. So they went with, that was Jet Li's idea, according to Stallone. Well, even when I heard it, I assume that has to be like a code name. That can't yeah. be the character's nope. real name. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, I assume it is their, uh, 
Uh, we don't know. It's, it's, bo- it's bottom yeah. of the barrel G.I. Joe names. Ying Yang, Toll Road, and Tool. Okay, well, that's something. Do you find this more entertaining than the G.I. Joe movies? Um... <laughs> okay, uh, I'm. I am going to say yes, but only because the GI Joe movies are trying to do so much that it's incoherent and boring. We and should cover those on this program at some point that I could stay engaged with. Yeah, we should cover those in this program at some point. I forgot there's two of them, but yeah, or three, including the original cartoon movie. Um, but yeah, it. it I, I didn't think of the GI Joe connection until you said it, but you're absolutely right. I think that one big inspiration for. Uh, oh, gee, years ago, Stallone was on, uh, what, Robert Rodriguez has the cable channel, the El Rey Network. Yeah. And, and he has a great show on there because he's a director, writer, you know, polyglot himself. He talks to different directors. It's sort of a, a looser interview show. And he talks to Stallone. And uh, Stallone mentioned with The Expendables, he said he got the idea because he saw that you have these old bands like, um, oh, I don't know, Guns N' Roses and stuff. And as they get older, to attract more crowds, what they have to do is they have to have all the old guys get together in sort of a, uh, like a Lollapalooza, that's not the right one, but, you know, get together in some sort of a big festival thing. And he said, couldn't you do, what? Or like those big, like, double-build reunion tours. Exactly, a double-triple-build reunion tours. And he said, couldn't we do that with action stars? And that was his inspiration for The Expendables, which I think is kind of genius. Um, no, that's a great idea, and I think that's kind of this movie's misstep because it it is so so dour. What I wanted was a celebration of those kinds of movies. What I wanted was the yeah, Avengers yeah. of action movies, and that's <laughs> sure. not what I got. Right? Um, yeah. More into the cast. I think Jason Statham and Stallone have a nice chemistry. They kind of joke with each other the whole time, and Jason Statham has been in plenty of action movies and. Uh, the Expendables, I think, was the first real big hit he was in, and now with the movie, the Shark movie, Meg is a big hit. I'm glad he has something that does really well that he's the star of because that guy works his ass off. Yeah, and he's he's often he, he he's often a really shining thing in whatever movie he's in. I mean, he's like with because he was in the the original Hitman movies, wasn't he? Uh, of somebody else? No, um, the Transporter. You mean? Oh no, the Transporter. Yeah, the Transporter. Yeah. I feel that he is better than the Transporter. Yes, and he um, he was quite good in the Melissa McCarthy action comedy Spy. Like he has some yeah. comedic chops, I think, and he has some um, good timing. It, it it is great fun to see Dolph Lundgren as Gunnar Jensen. Although I don't know what to make of his performance in this show. It's um, a lot of yelling. It's a very dark character, and we'll get into the plot soon enough, dear listeners. Um, uh, and you said you liked Randy Couture. Like, why? Do you think do you think he was sort of like a funny character, or or Steve Austin you enjoyed? Is it because he liked the wrestling at WCW at the time? Or well, it's what? partly. I mean, there there's a reason why he went from heel to face uh, in wrestling. I mean, he he does he does have this easygoing blue collar masculine charisma, uh-huh. but but at the same time, like it works. It I feel like he just works better as a hero when, when he's playing a villain. It almost reads too real. Ah, like okay. He, like when he's playing a villain, he looks like the kind of guy who starts shit in a bar just to beat up somebody. <laughs> like it's it comes off as very abusive. Uh, that's why yeah. I think that's part of why I like seeing him as the hero. It's it's actually it's the same way with the Rock. When the Rock is cast as a mm. villain, it doesn't work. But when he's cast uh, cast as a hero with some swagger, he's the, he's the best. I see. Um, 
uh, Terry Crews is has a lot of fun as Hail Caesar in this film. Oh, he's he's great, and the movie keeps forgetting that he's in it. Yeah, um, and there's a half joke about that at the end of the movie. There is, and I I think this was before he he was uh, tied up doing the sitcom. Um, oh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Brooklyn Nine Nine. Oh yeah, yes. this was long before that. Yeah, so it's it's not like he was tied up with with that much different stuff going on. And Terry Crews, I mean, uh, in your own time, like read his memoir or something, or watch some of his speeches. Like I, I find him a tre- tremendously inspirational individual. Um, he's really done a lot of very interesting uh, things with his life and his career. So he's a pretty cool guy. Um, we talked about the Stallone and or the Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis thing. Uh, Charisma Carpenter, probably best known from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is Lacey, Lee Christmas's uh, lady friend. And, um, eh, that, that just feels like it's from a different movie, right? Well, like, they, she's... Because, uh, you know, when, when they return from their first mission and, and Statham is reuniting with her... You you find out that she's uh, that she's got a, a new boyfriend in part because Statham is always leaving and she doesn't know where he goes or what he's doing or where he gets his money from, which is a reasonable reason to to end a relationship with somebody. Um, but then out of nowhere, it turns out that the new boyfriend is abusive. But then that gives Statham this really this this great hero moment where he tracks the abusive boyfriend down on a basketball court and beats the hell out of him. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about the bad guys in this movie? You have David Zayas as General Garza. Uh, he's perhaps best known for being in, um, oh, the serial killer show uh, Dexter. And oh, yeah, as uh, Lieutenant Batista. As Lieutenant, who's great in Dexter. Um, and then you have the great Z-grade uh, action movie star Eric Roberts as James Monroe. <laughs> he... So I kind of I kind of wish roles were reversed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Because General Garza is such a perfect '80s movie canon films Delta Force era like villain. It's real flat. Yeah. I either I either wish he was the true villain of this film, or that he ended up, or that he would end up doing a turn and joining the Expendables because. Because mm, James Monroe is, of course, the the real villain is this rogue CIA agent who is now becoming a drug kingpin. But he's he doesn't. We don't get a chance to see him do too much evil shit. No, but uh, like Eric Roberts is having much more fun with his role than David Zayas. And uh, well, that, that's and true. He, yeah, and he had worked uh, previously with Stallone in The Specialist. Um, which is a Stallone movie I haven't seen that has him and I think Sharon Stone or something. Hmm. But um, yeah, I think I, I agree. I would rather have seen Eric Roberts as the main villain. And what, what's really funny, I, uh, looking back on this movie when I saw it the first time, uh, the overall plot of this film I think is quite similar to the plot in uh, the fourth Rambo movie. Hmm. In that there's an evil general, you know, they're trying to take him out, who's abusing his power. They're tr- a group of people or mercenaries are trying to take him out. Do you have any thoughts on that, or you know that that hadn't that hadn't occurred to me? But th- but then again, like what other what other story could this movie possibly have? I don't. I mean, yeah, they're not trying to pick the most like relevant political story. This 
right? I mean, in, in, in Rambo 4, just called Rambo or John Rambo, depending on where you saw it, um, that, that's in Myanmar, that's like a real crisis that's going on. This this is like a, um, I hesitate to say fantasy, but you're right, this, this, the way this is shot and written, it is like a canon film 80s action movie that maybe played in two theaters and, you know, basically went direct to video and spawned a bunch of sequels or something. Like, even the name of The Expendables, I think, is fairly bland. Yeah, very, very true. And and I, I kind of want to talk about the way the way this movie cuts corners. Because there's one, there's one action sequence that is great, but it it irks on me so much whenever they're in a vehicle, how poorly composited the shots from inside the vehicle are. Right, well, why don't we start talking about the movie proper from the top? You want to do that? Yeah, let, let's go to the top. As we do, let's go, let's go to the top, buddy. I know, that's a terrible Stallone. We'll hear more of my bad Stallone later. Hey, we'll go back to the top. Let's go. Why did the dinosaurs die? The Ice Age. Okay. <laughs> oh, Lord. We need to give that movie... I know we covered that movie on sequel. We need to do a commentary for it. give it another look. Do a commentary, yeah. Uh, okay. Expendables. Uh, the opening of this film is, like, far darker, I think, than the rest of it. And almost, like, violently so. Well, it's it's a great it's a great intro only because it does it does establish all the characters and it deals with like a real thing that had been in the news at the time because it begins with uh, there's some Somali, Somali pirates, pirates yeah. and there's a hostage situation and the Expendables have been sent in to neutralize the pirates and rescue the hostages. Well, uh, yeah, and, and much like in the tra- in the tradition of James Bond, it starts like with this short self-contained mission. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the rest of the film, mm-hmm. um, and and it's. And it's very, it's very, it's very well done. They do a great job of establishing the characters, who they are, what their attributes are, what their specialized combat skills are, uh, which is great. I do, I do love the knife play. Knife play doesn't get nearly enough, enough play in action movies. But the the two the two things that I think held this otherwise flawless opening scene back, um, one. They get too casual with the gunplay. I mean, towards the end of the hostage situation, they do just start spraying automatic weapons fire over over the, <laughs> the pirates who are mixed in with the hostages. hostages I yeah. don't know how any hostage survived this this conflict. But then the other thing, so it's there's this there's this character moment uh, with uh, Dolph Lundgren's character where he wants to hang. He wants to hang one of the pirates to make uh-huh. an example out of them. And I yeah. thought, ooh, this is great foreshadowing. I bet he's the guy that's going to betray the team. Sure, uh, yeah. And I thought, oh, the betrayal's going to come at the end of the second or the beginning of the third act. No, it comes here. He gets angry with them for not letting him hang a pirate, and then he vanishes and does not show up until halfway through the film in the employ of the villain. Right. It's... um that's handled kind of clumsily, but I agree. I like that he tries to hang someone, and even that is like too much for the Expendables. I mean, not to mention like they're fine with shooting people, but hanging, we don't do that. Like, well, I mean, they have a, they have a code of honor, and uh-huh. they yeah. uh, such as it is. But you know, it 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 it's nice th- that they establish very early on that there are lines that they will not cross. It does, it yeah, does and, and, and you get a little weird. brief uh, fracas between uh, Jet Li and Dolph Lundgren, which is kind of fun. Although it is shot like in pure darkness and you can't really see what's going on. <laughs> um, but you're right. I think like it, it's a good way to introduce people in the movie. Um, 
And, and also you get fun dialogue with them flying back home to New Orleans. Like any moment they're on their trademark, uh, you know, cargo plane. Oh, yeah. Like just like smoking cigars and screaming at each other, like is a good moment in my book. One of the, the character interactions, like the as I said, the character moments are are really strong, and I wish I wish there were more of that. I mean, it's it's something it's something that is so underutilized is just how how endearing those kinds of scenes can be. Uh, I don't mind a movie taking five extra minutes to give the characters just some business interacting because that's going to pay so much, so many dividends later because I'm going to care so much more about what they're doing and what their fate is. And that's what I think is something, even though all the Expendables characters are fairly rote and cliche, they feel lived in and there's a nice chemistry between them, as you just mentioned. And I think that that's something in favor uh, of this movie. Unfortunately, a lot of times it likes to focus on, isn't it terrible that these guys, they've had no real home life, their whole life has been their job, and they're burnt out, and how much longer can they keep doing it? I mean, you want to talk about the dour tone, like there's that sort of uh, stuff hanging over some of the scenes. And also with the... Um, I, I, there's not, for my liking, there's not enough humor in this film, and I think part of the appeal of the 80s action movies this is trying to revive is that they were kind of light on their feet and a bit, uh, not overly cute, but, you know, kind of a bit light in the loafers. A bit, well, they were quippy. Uh, quippy, that's a good guess. Yeah, right. Um, but if you feel that, you're going to love the, the movie next week, Expendables 2. All right. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the, as you mentioned, as we said earlier, uh, they get briefed by Mr. Church. In a church. By Bruce. Played in, in a yeah in a church, played by Bruce Willis by a grumpy Bruce Willis. So I gotta wonder: Do you think? Do you think he he paid the 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 church officials off to just vacate the premises so they could have this meeting? Oh, probably. Yeah. Um, that is in a church is I think kind of funny. It that makes it a bit different. But that Mister Church is literally in a church. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I appreciate that or not. It's. Well, I think they should have they should have taken more advantage of the setting. They should have been sitting in pews or in a confessional booth or someone should have been at the lectern. But there this this could be this scene could have taken place in any room. The, the they they don't take advantage of the church. But this but things get rolling. Uh you know, Schwarzenegger comes in as uh, as Trench Mauser, another rejected GI Joe name. Uh-huh. And you know, and Mr. Church just kind of lays out that there's this South American dictator they want eliminated. They're offering five million dollars uh, for it, and, and they're offering a contract. And you know, clearly, Mr. Church has ties to the government, although they don't know what those ties are. But that's not really important for their job. Correct. And I just, I so, it was so great seeing these three guys like in on the screen together. I still, again, I wish, I wish it was more than just some exposition. It's a real crappy scene to have three action movie legends interacting with each other. Like they might as well just be in the at a urinal, each taking a piss, talking to each other. Like that, at least that would have been a funny setting for a mission briefing. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Or even if you're going to keep harkening back to the '80s, make it the obligatory uh, strip club scene. Oh my god, that's a great idea! Yeah. Uh. <laughs> like, aren't you worried about somebody eavesdropping? No one can hear us over all this music. 
Right, like, maybe play, maybe play, play like, Nasty Girl from Beverly Hills Cop over the soundtrack. I, oh, I you, you to- totally do, but you get, like, you get a modern artist like Peaches to cover it. Woof. Okay. Um, well, so, I mean, yeah, so they, they get the gang together to do this mission. Uh, I, I just want to talk... kind of undercut some of the yeah. darkness, because when Stallone's given the rest of the team the mission briefing, uh, you know, Jet Li uh, makes this comment, you know, I need uh, I, I need more money from my son. I'm trying to get him into a better school. And then, like, everybody's like, wait, <laughs> you've got a family? Uh-huh. Like, it was just kind of, like, nice. I just, I wish, I wish... Jet Li having a son wasn't wasn't always a joke. Sure, and that you get to see his family because I don't think you ever do in any of these movies, which is too bad. Uh, but I do like that Jet Li is part of the group. That you don't have just white guys in the group. And I mean, the same with Terry Crews, right? You have a di- ethnically diverse group here. Um, which, if this movie was made in the eighties, it would be all white guys. Well, there, there'd be there would be the token black guy who would die in the first act, and everyone else yes. would spend the rest of the movie avenging him. That is true. To, to the point where I was expecting there to be a fake out where you think Terry Crews has died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been something uh, to up the dramatic stakes a bit. Yeah, and I guess I gotta I gotta say that the, all these guys are indestructible. At no point do I feel that they're ever going to suffer. Which again matches with your GI Joe metaphor from earlier. It, oh, true. it does it, it does take a lot of teeth out of the action scene when it's like, oh, they can do whatever. They are, and, and so uh, earlier you were hinting at an action scene that looked clumsy compared to one that looked really excellent. Um, can you talk about those? Yeah, well, well, I mean, mo- most of the action scenes just they they were they were big and they were loud, uh, but there there were certain things that that really hindered a number of them for me. One was the bad vehicle compositing. Two, there's a lot of CGI fire in this movie. Yep. And, like, I mean blatantly CGI fire. To the point where, like, it looked... You, you know, like, in old video games when, like, a character <laughs> would be set on fire, rather than having a special fire animation, they would, like, overlay a fire effect on the character's normal animation? Yeah, with some transparency, sure. That That's what it looks like when someone's set on fire in this movie. But... Um, later in the movie, there's an action scene that works so well for me, where it's Stallone and Jet Li are driving in a truck, mm. and uh, Dolph Lundgren and his goons attack them, and there's a lot of real vehicle damage. I don't think there's a single CGI vehicle in that scene, and they all have so much momentum and get beat up so much in the course of that fight. Uh, it's it's always so much better to see real damage on the screen. If there was CGI in that scene, it was so artfully done, I couldn't even tell the difference. Uh, the action scenes I appreciated in the film, uh, one that was okay is they make a big deal of uh, the plane coming down to strafe, to do a strafing run. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, later on in the film, yeah, when, when they when they meet, uh, when, when they meet their... Uh, their contact in South America and uh, they're going to try to rescue her. She won't go. And there's all these, you know, the general's guards. Yeah, that there's a lot going on at the towards the end of that fight scene. There's a lot. I also appreciate the final assault on the compound at the end, just because it's so crazy. And you have, frankly, kind of, uh, and I mean this in the best sense possible, idiotic dialogue where Barney is throwing like a bomb, like a football, 
to Terry Crews. <laughs> oh yeah, and then, ter- then like Terry throws it at a helicopter. Stallone shoots it with a pistol, and it explodes, yes. destroying the helicopter. Yeah, and that's I think the kind of attitude this movie could use more of. And what's very fascinating is uh, if you ever um, pick up the the Blu-ray uh, for this, and it doesn't matter if it's the normal version or the extended cut. It has an excellent feature-length documentary on the Expendables, and when they show you the filming of this scene, all that stuff was improvised on set. Really? Yeah. Even though Stallone, you know, legitimately rewrote the script and has, you know, co-writing screenplay credit, uh, apparently, at least according to this documentary making this particular film, um, he rewrites a lot on the set and takes a lot of input from different actors and stuff and is very kind of loose. He's not wedded to the script as, as written on the page. And that you have such a climactic way to end an action scene kind of made up ad hoc on the scene uh, kind of makes it like all the more appealing in my mind because that's such a nutty conceit. Well, that's that's what I feel like. All all the action scenes should have been that over the top. They should still escalate. Sure, right. But I mean that that is the kind of thing that could only happen in in, in a crazy eighties action movie. Um, you had mentioned uh, your your love of Steve Austin. What do you think about the fight between Steve Austin and Stallone? Uh it's 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 okay, but it is undercut by the CGI fire. Right. They, they, to, to give you context, listeners, um, he is. They do a, a sort of like up and close, down and dirty wrestling kind of match, and this is the scene where Sylvester Stallone was almost paralyzed. Yeah. What exactly happened? Right. So if they go into the details. This is the documentary. I cannot. Even if you don't like this movie in general, it's worth buying the DVD on sale just to watch the feature length documentary because they don't. They they don't. Uh, uh, it, it's not a um, an ass kissing show like they really get into some troubles on set Uh, so uh, originally like they wanted Stallone uh, wanted um, fight you know wanted it choreographed as you traditionally do a scene and was getting pushed back from Steve Austin saying you know like oh in all these big Hollywood action movies it's uh, it's just um, uh, you know it's all bullshit I want to do like a real fight and so because of that they did a fight sort of impromptu unrehearsed, and Steve Austin oh. is a younger man than Stallone. Stallone is in great shape, don't get me wrong, right? Um, but in one of the sort of like the pile driver moves, Stallone landed Ron on his neck, had to go to the hospital, and I think like maybe fractured some, uh, um, oh, what do you call the back, the neck bones or whatever, the, the T4, the T7. Oh, the ver- those vertebrae, those upper vertebrae? Yeah, I think he might have like, you know, uh, had to take time off the set and stuff to repair his vertebrae from damage in that scene. Oh, damn. And it's a shame because it's, like, not even a good action scene. Like, it just looks like two guys grunting on the dusty ground. Like, it's not... It may be just the way it's shot or whatever, but... <laughs> so, that Stallone recovered so well speaks to his, his health. Um, and he got lucky, frankly. But it also shows the value of fight choreography. Every time... You do a fight scene or a stunt in a movie; it's a calculated risk. And keeping in mind, like when you have that professional wrestler training, that is all about doing these physical acts that look painful, but that that aren't that you can shrug off to make the fight look good. Austin has that training; Stallone doesn't. 
Correct. You have it's all about knowing how to take a. I mean, I've never done professional wrestling, but I've done. I did judo briefly when I was younger, and it's how to take a fall is like the most important lesson you can learn. And so safety. I'm talking about somebody who's really underserved in this film is sure. uh, Giselle Ite, whose name I, whose name I may very well be butchering. I'm not entirely sure how that's meant to be. How uh, she's uh, she's their point of contact. Yeah, is uh, is Sandra who turns who turns out to be the general's daughter, and I wish I she is intro the way she's introduced. I'm like, oh man, at the end of this movie, she's gonna show up leading the cadre of rebels, and it's gonna be so badass. That would have been cool. But that's not the case. She, she's nah. robbed of her agency. Like the last the last bit of agency she has is when she refuses to leave her country with the Expendables and chooses to stay behind to fight the good fight. But we never see her with rebels. We never see her. We, we, we. She's just kidnapped. She's just kidnapped and tortured. Yeah, it, it's again that may, maybe that's on purpose for the whole '80s feel of the film, and that you know women didn't really get a lot of good parts, and were just sort of objects to be rescued, kind of like princess at the end of the Mario game. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, this is this would be a perfect opportunity to to subvert that. I mean, I wanted, agreed. Yeah, I wanted to see her kick a little ass, and I was I was denied that. Sure. Um, yeah, that, that even, is even really... her being the general's daughter is almost incidental. Right. You think you could really have some some good dramatic scenes, or maybe she's the one that ends up killing the father, her father. I don't know, like. Yeah, there's a lot you could do with that, and it is kind of wasted. Which oh, one thing one thing I noticed about the the general. So there are there are propaganda posters of the general all all around. Did you notice that all that most of those posters are modeled to look like the Obama campaign poster? I did, and also Stallone is a uh, notorious conservative. So maybe that's a. Kind of a, a slight kind of political slam. Um, I feel I feel like it it has to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like look looking back on that now, I don't know what the movie was trying to say, and I'm not sure if what it said matters. Right. Uh, yeah. It ain't subtle. And, and I mean, we talked about the last alone pictures on the show, going back to the original series, talking about all the Rambo and the Rocky movies. Sylvester Stallone, in his writing with his politics, he's not. He's not subtle with his character's politics. He says it right on the page, and um, for better or for worse. Well, it's, but, it's everything. It's everything short of a character stopping a legal proceeding to give an impassioned speech. Well, and he did get an impassioned speech at the end of Rocky IV, lest we forget. Oh wait, yeah, about how about how people can change. Yeah, uh, which was very un-Rocky because Rocky doesn't or shouldn't speak that much because he's had a lot of blows to the head. Um, yeah, we forget why he lost that battery endorsement. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, I thought that a pretty amusing note. And I, I do feel that the role of the general, as we hinted at earlier, is a bit wasted. Because David Zayas, I think, is a, is a good actor. And he's just not given a, a lot to to deal with. Um like I kind of, I just, I kind of want to see him massacre somebody, or yeah, see, yeah, remember? see him like, like, like we, we also like, or, or I guess that's the thing. Like the movie doesn't do a good job of a really good job of sort of establishing what the evil is. So like we see, we see his goons overturn some fruit carts. 
That's <laughs> well, and the waterboarding. That's it. We never see. Yeah. We never see the consequences of the drug trade they're facilitating. We never see. We never see them massacre counter revolutionaries. Right. It, you hear a lot of how bad of a guy it is, but you don't see it. And as the maxim goes in filmmaking, show don't tell. Uh, I mean, think about the the evil general in this compared to the evil general in Rambo Four. Right. Like I don't remember that guy's name, but he was chopping the limbs off of civilians it's implied that he raped children like you really wanted him to get it at the end when he gets his throat sliced remember oh yeah and, and like with with eric roberts who is you know the who is the man behind the evil who's the real who's supposed to be the, the uh-huh. true villain the mastermind you, you know again he's just he's just you know t- took over a drug trade uh to get rich but we and yes there is some element of betrayal there but it's not like we see it it's not like it's it's not like we're given any real concrete reason to 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 like hate him and to justify the violence that is used uh to uh overthrow him although that's that's also one thing that that did screw that, that did sort of i felt like didn't jive is that uh after they get some photographs of the South American country while pretending to be members of a nature conservancy which I kind of wish they did more with that which was a, f- a fun conceit that that's their cover is that they're ornithologists um but sure. they they were able to ident- there's the you know there's this white guy hanging out with the hanging out with them and they're able to identify them at identify him as James Monroe ex CIA operative and they really quickly jumped to the conclusion Oh, he's the real target. He's the real reason we've been sent here. We better call off this deal. I'm not sure why that's a problem, and I'm not sure why if he's the real target, they don't just tell the Expendables he's the real target. This script could have used another pass. Yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, however, you know, I think as as convoluted, overly convoluted as the plot can get, as mediocre as some of the action is, uh, I, I do take some solace, and at the last shot, wisely... There, it's all the guys chilling out in the tattoo parlor. Yeah, it's a nice little button to this movie. Everyone's hanging out at Tool's tattoo parlor. Um, actually, can we talk about Tool? Yeah, yeah. Tool played by Mickey, uh, Rourke. Mickey Rourke. Yeah, no, he. Uh, I wish he would have joined the crew in this movie in surprise, like at the end, because like he. Yeah. He just, oh yeah. He's a lot of fun. And he has he has so much personality. He has a great backstory. Uh, he's he's clearly lived a life that would be worthy of having an action movie based on it. But, yeah, spinoff, you know, sure. Oh yeah, but 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 his but his whole thing, you know, he he uh, he was a member of the Expendables. I suppose he technically still is because he's their contact man. He's the guy that hooks them up with Mister Church. He's kind of their face, I guess, or their hookup. Um, but now he's he's an artist full time. He does tattoos and tattoo designs. Um, but he has this great moment halfway through. Where he talks about you know why why he's not in the game anymore, and it's all this story about a mission that they had, and where he witnessed a woman commit suicide, and he had every opportunity to save this woman's life, but decided not to. And there's a lot of there's a lot of heart in that scene, and it, and it makes you both hate and love his character at the same time. Yeah, it's a great moment, kind of contrasting with his Charlotte's Web tattoo joke he does with Jason Statham. Which, yeah. that, that, that scene comes off as improvised. I don't know if it was. And it sounds it seems like Jason Statham is trying not to laugh during the scene. Like, there's a nice 
uh, shaggy dog quality to it. It's yeah, I, feel, very I feel like he had to. He either had to have been making that up, or like there was a joke in the script about a Charlotte's Web tattoo design, and he just ran with that and wouldn't wouldn't end the scene. But but yeah. this whole ending is really nice because you know they're they're drinking, they're having fun. There were there were some comments at the beginning about knife play and whether knife whether it's faster to to, to hit someone with a knife or shoot them, which uh-huh. comes up later because that's the way that's the way Eric Robert dies in the climax is he's holding. Uh, he's holding Giselle hostage and Stallone shoots him and at the exact same time that Jason Statham stabs him through the back and impales him on a CGI machete. Um, and this all comes back because they're throwing they're throwing knives at this uh, at this this new painting of his of, of tools and Jason Statham does this whole thing I won't te- I want to tell you a poem and he starts with a limerick but then he completely loses the meter. <laughs> and it's just him kind of mocking Tool and doing this huge knife throw from across the street, which I presume hits its mark because everyone's really wowed, although we don't see, uh, we don't actually see the target. And on the one hand, like, as somebody who enjoys a bit of poetry, especially limics, limericks, I, I hate that they kind of, like, lose the meter of the limerick that is set up at the beginning of the, of the whole poem. But it does sound like a bad improvised poem that someone might make up while delivering a toast. Right. Um, also we have, let's, yeah, I, it should be noted too that Mickey Rourke had starred with Stallone uh, in a part in uh, Stallone's remake of the Michael Caine film, Get Carter, from 2000. So, huh. that's the Mickey Rourke-Stallone connection. Um, but no, it's it's a real neat kind of ending scene, and yeah, I I really hope uh, they're they're working on an Expendables four, and it would be nice if they brought Mickey Rourke back because so far he is he's not in two or three. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. Absolutely, he's sorely missed. Or at least start the movie with his character's funeral. Eh, I guess. Okay, so would you recommend the Expendables? Would you give it sequel yes or sequel no? I'm going to give it a very a very soft sequel. No, uh, this movie does not live up to its potential. It doesn't justify the inclusion of all these great, talented, iconic people, and it should it should be a celebration of this kind of action genre, not not this kind of grim retread, which is what I, I feel it really is. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I also give it sequel. No, I think I think it's not ambitious enough. It's a little bit lazy. Um, it, it's it's an okay starting point, and uh, we'll see how things improve in the weeks to come where we talk about uh, Expendables 2 and Expendables 3. Um, I, I do want to mention briefly, I have seen the extended director's cut, The Expendables, and um, it has some interesting changes, one of which is at the beginning when they're flying back from the mission, they cut out a lot of the jokes and have like really sad, dour music playing hmm. over the credits. So the credit sequence is sort of different. And also, um, in the assault on the compound, right in the theatrical cut, they just have um, music from Brian Tyler in the background, who I think score his music here is okay. Um, And in the director's cut, they replace it with, uh, you might recall in the marketing for The Expendables, which had a lot of money in the marketing. uh, Commercials were everywhere. They played a song... um, by the band... Ah, shit. Uh, here it is. By the band Shinedown, 
they played the track Diamond Eyes Boom Lay Boom Lay Boom. Every one of those is expendable, right? Um, in the trailers, but it's not in the movie itself. And in the director's cut, they play that track over part of that assault scene at the end, replacing the music score. And I think that works a bit better. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, if, if that track is is very that that I like that song, but like it's very ridiculous because part of it is macho stuff, and part of it like tries to be like serious and sincere, and much like the movie, uh, the some of that stuff doesn't quite work. Yeah, the the credit sequence that was on the theatrical version is a new ver a new recording of uh of the boys are back in town by Thin Lizzy. Really? Uh, well, I thought it was a cover, but no, that was Thin Lizzy. Okay. Well. Uh, Good for Thin Lizzy. I don't know. I like the boys are back in town. That's a fine. What did you think of the cover? It, it wasn't a cover. It's it is Thin Lizzy. It's just a new recording. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a new recording. Yeah, it's. Of it's the I don't know. I overall like it's it's completely redundant, but it was it was fun. There's some little flourishes in there that's not in the usual recording you hear on the radio. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, great. So pitch a sequel. Uh, I had something in mind for this. Yep. So, after this, you know, the, the, the sort of mediocre, frankly, movie, um, it did well enough to do a sequel. So if I was to do a sequel to this original Expendables film, uh, what I would do is give it more of a, uh, a globe-hopping kind, kind of flair to it, to both uh, appeal to more international markets, but also to, get, to have some different scenery in there, because frankly, the sort of like South American jungle dictator stuff is kind of overdone. Uh, I would have it be set in um, in Tokyo and have it be the Expendables versus the Yakuza, and huh. be kind of like you know hardcore Japanese mafia stuff against the Expendables. It would involve. Um, I would have at least two of the Expendables die to really up the stakes in the story. I'm not really sure which ones, and. It would. I would also have, uh, as their local liaison in in Tokyo, it would be a um, it maybe cast an actor like uh, I don't know, like Ken Watanabe or something, to join the crew and maybe have him have some beef with Jet Li about something. And you tie something historical about uh, Japan's past treatment of the Chinese in there. Huh and have some sort of uh, dramatic meat to the bones. And it would, you would also, because it's in Japan, and I think you have, you kind of have to, you would have some scene where uh, Jason Statham has a knife and he fights against a, a Yakuza guy with a samurai sword. A uh, katana or a wakazashi? Katana. Hmm. So it would be a huge Japanese sword against like a little kind of scrappy dagger thing. And um, and you would have, uh, for comedic moments, you'd have a scene where somehow some of the Expendables end up on a Japanese game show. <laughs> and they have to do it to go undercover to access some informant of some kind. Now at some point, will Schwarzenegger turn to the camera and go, Daijiao Pui! Uh, not as such, but he would get an energy drink from a machine. And say something like, it'd be more subtle, it'd be like, I really like these, they really, they tasted better 20 years ago. (laughs) 
and it would be called uh, Expendables v. Yakuza. Huh. So I want to do Expendables 2 uh, Toolbox. I want Tool mm. to be uh, have a bigger part in this movie. Sure. So my premise is uh, it goes back to Bosnia, and in fact, we see... Uh, the movie begins with a flashback where we see some of the action the Expendables saw in Bosnia, um, including including uh, ending with uh, with the, the woman that Tool did not save. Uh, then we cut to the present, and what's happened is you know the Expendables are going to go uh, to Tools to get some new ink done, and they arrive at Tools, and the place is trashed. Someone has, mm. uh, but there's no bodies. Someone's destroyed the tattoo parlor, but Tools missing. Tools been kidnapped. Turns out. He's been kidnapped by a uh, by one of the Bosnian warlords that they opposed uh, during that mission, who escaped justice. And okay, they think that he's ca- kidnapped Tool because he wants to get revenge on the Expendables spot through Tool. Uh, so they go on a globe hunting mission, trying to track uh, trying to track Tool down so they can rescue him. Uh, and of course, uh, they will at one point get contacted that there's this huge ransom. Uh, and when word gets out that Tool has been kidnapped, all of their friends come out of the woodwork to help, including Schwarzenegger. So Schwarzenegger will well and truly be part of this team, uh, helping them out on this global hunt. Only as it uh, as it goes on, uh, we realize that this Bosnian guy has a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of uh, potentially American government funding, and this is how we tie it into the first film. Uh, it turns out, <clears throat> excuse me, it turns out that uh, rogue CIA operative James Monroe still had some contacts in the CIA, CIA and other uh, rogue operatives. They want revenge on the Expendables for ruining their whole South American uh, drug deal. So finally, when it, when they assault, uh, so this whole thing has been about drawing the Expendables out so that anyone they've ever opposed can get revenge on them. Oh, that's pretty uh, and, cool. Yeah, and it, and of course it will end in like a huge shootout, possibly like on an on an oil rig, uh, and mainly so that there can be a huge explosion when the oil rig goes up at the end. But what's going to be great is that when they finally get to the cell where Tool's being held, he's not there. Uh, so mm. in the final fight scene, Tool comes out of nowhere. Turns out he's still a badass. He escaped hours ago <laughs> and has been waiting for them to show up. So Tool joins in the final fight scene. Uh, they leave uh, They leave the oil rig on their, uh, on their Nature Conservancy plane and the oil rig triumphantly blows up behind them. So I imagine in the final fight scene, Tool gets some good moments. Would he attack people with like tattoo... Uh, ink guns or something? Or? Well, no, that's that's a bit too that's a bit too gimmicky. <laughs> we would well because they all they all have a shtick. I guess we the trick will be figuring out what was Tool's shtick and like his name Tool. I suppose that implies that like he was their wheel man. Like he uh, he maintained the vehicles. So maybe he'll beat the hell out of people with some maintenance equipment and some oil rigging uh, tools. Oh, not that he's a tool. Is it his personality? No, I feel like it has to be a reference to his job. Like, he had okay. to be the guy ru- running the motor pool. Gotcha. Um, and wheels was already taken. Sure. Um, well, this is interesting. I didn't realize this. Uh, you know you know that Stallone is filming Rambo 5 this September? No, I did not know that. It's going to be using a script. He uh, was floating around involving uh, him helping someone rescue their daughter from Mexican uh, cartels. Hmm. I thought Rambo 4 was quite good and had a, frankly, moving ending. So um, I hope Rambo 5 is just as 
crazy with its violence. But we'll have to see. And, I mean, also in this uh, end of this year, November, we get Creed 2 coming out. Oh, that's right. Where I'm Creed fights that. against Dolph Lundgren's, against, uh, and Dolph Lundgren is also starring in that. Um, but I think he's fighting against his uh, son or something. It's something something along those lines. Or maybe it'll turn out to be a clone of Dolph Lundgren. I wish. All right. So that's enough of that. Um, <laughs> I think uh, i got a question for you, Thrasher. I always seem to have this question when we do the show. Uh, what you watching? All right. Well, I I took an interesting cinematic detour. Um, I, watched, uh, I watched a movie that kind of goes back to the... The fifties and sixties, the time of uh, the Kitty matinee. Uh, I mm. watched the uh, the movie, The Wonderful Land of Oz, which confusingly is based on the novel, The Marvelous Land of Oz, by L. Frank Baum. Is this a feature film, a TV show? What is this? I... Oh, no, it is, it is. It is a feature film. There's a DVD huh. uh, that was released by Something Weird Video. Uh, okay, a, a handful, as I understand it, a handful of the people connected to the infamous Santa Claus and the Ice Cream Bunny uh, worked on this, but it's directed by Barry Mann, who is a guy who has a really, really long career in B-movies and exploitation. He did a lot of like burlesque reels and like new, uh, early nudie films, but also has like a weird collection of children's entertainment, such as San- Santa's Christmas Elf named Calvin. Um, but he may be most well-known to viewers for being the writer-director of the uh, movie Rocket Attack USA, which was featured on the uh, second season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. This is... I never knew this existed. Oh, and it has the Gump in there. Interesting. Okay. And the Woggle Bug. There's a lot of more obscure... uh, Oz characters in sure. it. General Ginger is in it. Jack Pumpkinhead yeah, is in yeah. it. The Woogle Bug is in it. There, There is something sort of... The whole thing, it feels like they just kind of filmed a slightly better than average stage production of this story. But it's also like everything in the movie happens because the script says it should happen. Nothing is particularly uh, motivated uh, in any way throughout the film. How are the musical numbers? They're not good. I mean, every every song <laughs> every song feels like a first draft. Although I do like um, General Ginger has this song called uh the the great oh is it like the great rebellion day or the great on that great takeover day yeah the great takeover day like it's it should be a show-stopping number like if one more draft and that song would have been perfect it's it's a great it's a great boisterous song and looks like in 2017 riff tracks did a version of this yes there is a riff track version that is that is pretty entertaining it if you're gonna watch it, you might as well watch it like that. Uh, watch it that particular way. I'll have to track that down. You know, it's, a, it's I'm always surprised by how many different Oz movies have been made. They, they did a really great um, when Wizard of Oz came out on Blu-ray the first time around, and I think they've kept this on the later re-releases because this, of course, Wizard of Oz, the 1939 musical, is one of those that have come out on video like five million times in five million versions. Oh yeah. Uh, they put a lot of the old silent film versions on the disc. And um, cool. And they also, and one of those uh, releases, they put a whole TV movie starring John Ritter as L. Frank Baum as like a biopic. Cool. Now it's like terrible video. It's like taken from like an awful like third generation videotape master, but that is on there is like pretty cool. I mean, I and clearly when uh, 
did you ever watch the, um, I know we covered it on the show, but I don't think you watched it at the time, the Oz movie directed by Sam Raimi? No, I still, unfortunately, okay. have not seen that. Oz, great and powerful. I think you might enjoy that, but clearly that was meant to kick off a franchise, which didn't happen. Um, but I would not mind another decent movie to be done in that universe. We, there was like a shitty cartoon that came out with Dan Aykroyd doing the voice of the Scarecrow a year or two ago um, about Oz. Oh, yeah, that like Dorothy's Adventures in Oz or something like that. Uh, that sounds right, yeah. Brian um, Blessed is in that as well. I love Brian Blessed. He can do no wrong. But yeah, so um, great. Okay, so something that I saw was uh, I want to talk about two things really quick, then I'll give you an opportunity to talk about something else, and then we'll talk about this convention thing we talked about off mic. How does that sound? Absolutely. Great, okay, because we have some time. Um uh, I saw a movie in the theaters. This is The Happy Time Murders. Oh, I've been meaning to see that. I haven't had time. Right. Um, uh, the, I think one of the more amusing things about the movie, we go to the box office, and they have huge signs saying, do not take your kid to see Happy Time Murders. This is an R-rated film. It's and, R-rated, uh, and murder is in the title. <laughs> Why are people taking kids to this? Well, it, despite all that, when we were in the theater, there was little kids in the theater with their parents. Ugh. And this is a hard R. I mean, not as hard R as Meet the Feebles, but um, you have scenes with puppet uh, uh, ejaculate spraying everywhere. Yeah. You, I, I don't, I don't recall if there's bare puppet breasts, but if not, there's there's like uh, a lot of S and M stuff. Like it, it, it earns its R rating, right? And not to mention the language in it. Um, and Happy Time Murders, I thought was good, not great, but it. You know, I'm I'm willing to support R-rated puppet movies. I'd like to see more of those, really. And uh, I like that it is a murder mystery at its core, um, and it it does have a it, it does a nice job, kind of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit did, where it's a living world where puppets are up against human people, and people are racist against puppets. Is sort of a common thing, um, and the characters have you know history with the characters and, and all these sort of things. And, uh, and Melissa McCarthy is kind of the straight man, which is kind of unusual. Um, in that, I mean, she gets jokes, but she's sort of like the former partner of the main puppet character. Um, the movie does not have a musical number, which disappointed me, I think, because because it has puppets, they should be a song and dance sequence. Um, but there's not really. And, uh, the one thing that's, it's called Happy Time Murders, because people that are being murdered were people that were, uh, the puppets that were the star of, like, this 90s, um... Uh, happy Time puppet show, and you don't see enough of the old puppet show to get to feel invested with the characters. I think they get killed off, and it could have, in my mind, it could have used sort of like an intro, kind of um, almost like the intro to Rocky Three or something, where it explains why why the show was a phenomenon and such a big deal. Hmm. If that makes sense. Just like something to get you a bit more invested in it. I think so, yeah. Something to get you a bit more invested, a bit more context. Because the movie assumes everyone knows what Happy Time Murders is, and the audience doesn't. <laughs> so, uh, but a, a lot of a lot of the human cast, you know, is quite quite good. Uh, a lot of uh, SNL alums and, and so forth. So, um, I would I would recommend it, like on a matinee or, or maybe like rent it. I, I don't think it was as funny as say Sausage Party, but I'm. Um, along those lines, I'm pretty pleased we're getting some R-rated, you know, animated or puppet movies in theaters, because we haven't seen that since Team America, uh, over a decade ago. Yeah, there's always a huge gap between, uh, between adult puppet, uh, movies. 
in the uh, in the United States, it should be mentioned. Yeah. Um, so uh, other thing, uh, my my friend and I, uh, Katie, we watch musicals together about once a month. It's been sort of our unofficial club. Cool. And uh, we always we take turns picking what to watch. And um, although we haven't said it, you know, it's it's always been live action. I think we've sort of said no cartoons as a off the record thing. And so we watched one that. It kind of grew on me that I hated as a child, and I kind of think it's it's better upon rewatching. It's Chitty Chitty Bane Bane. Oh yeah, which has its problems, oh, like it a does. lot of dogs. Like a lot of a movie. Yes, like a lot of uh, epic musicals from the late sixties, which is kind of like the last gasp of that classic Hollywood musical. It's overly long. It's kind of slow. the The tone is all over the place. You have the um, the book uh, Chitty Chitty Bane Bane is was published uh, posthumously uh, by Ian Fleming, author of the James Bond series, and the James Bond producers, you know, did this film. Uh, and they, they stole away Dick Van Dyke from Disney, and also they stole away the, the music, the songwriters from Disney, who did um, Mary Poppins, the Sherman Brothers. The Sherman Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. Uh, what I found quite interesting is uh, a little bit over a decade ago in London, they did a, an adaptation of this film as a stage show, which, considering all the effects in the movie, I can't imagine how you do it on stage. But they got the Sherman Brothers to write new music for it, and they get, they gave the child catcher a musical number, and guess who played the child catcher? Tim Curry. Uh, no, Cummings. but you're close. Richard O'Brien. Oh! And, um, as the the king, uh, whatever, the king oh, of Baron all... Bomberst. Baron Bomberst is played by the beloved Brian Blessed in the London cast. Oh, so you should track down. You should uh, listen to the album on YouTube or, or buy it or something. But it's quite good. Um, but back to the movie. Um, yeah, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It's it's a weird mixture of like a love story and uh, international uh, intrigue. <laughs> international, yeah, sort of like German satire, child abuse. And, Magic cars, and also uh, I, I was oddly moved by the song where um, our our adult heroes, Dick Van Dyke, and I forget who, who the actress is, and uh, his love interest, uh, have to pose as um, marionettes. And there's kind of a lovely song where she talks about being like trapped as a as a doll, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, a doll, a song about being a doll trapped in a music box. Yeah, uh, and there's something kind of beautiful. Like, that song is too good for that musical. Uh, it's, be- <laughs> it's beautiful. It's also amazingly well choreographed, the sort of yes, herky-jerky yeah. automaton motion she does, and it's all being done while she's slowly rotating on a platform. It, it's like, no, it's um, lovely choreography, lovely, like, the movie is, you said, Dog's Breakfast, real shaggy dog of a film. It, it doesn't entirely work, but I um, I was rather pleased with it. I think it held up better than, say, the uh, Dr. Doolittle uh, musical from the 60s. Well, you know what? I think what it is, is it's, it's whatever the opposite of a gestalt is. The movie's individual parts are so much better than the actual movie that they transcend the movie itself. Yeah, and you... Um, uh, I'm kind of a fan, and it's a saccharine kind of garbage number, truly scrumptious. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, there's some really clever lyrics in there, or you have like a, uh, some of it feels like Willy Wonka, right, with the candy factory. 
Yeah. And, 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 and they have a, a candy they call a toot sweet, which is like a peppermint you can blow on. And it has lyrics like, a bonbon to blow on has finally been found. Oh, well, yeah, it was a toot sweet, toot sweet, a... Uh, it's it's uh, a food that you play, it's a tune you can eat, you know. Yeah, it, it's... It, uh, anyway, it's... If you like musicals at all, it, it's worth a rewatch. Bizarre, bizarre film. Um, so I, I once wrote yeah. a parody of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that did involve a rivalry between that candy company and a Willy Wonka type uh, candy company. Go. But the truly scrumptious character, the, the part that I, the, the part that just tickled me, and I, I can't stop laughing about this, was I the parody version I wrote of her was named Mildly Appetizing. That's pretty good. <laughs> it worked pretty well. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so also, what's, what's another movie you've been enjoying? Oh, gosh, I can't. I can't could be a book, say. As could I, be TV. I'm glad. I'm glad you say enjoy because I haven't like. I I feel like I haven't seen like a, a truly great movie uh, in a while. But actually, I'll tell you something really fascinating. I've been watching. Uh, yes, there's a YouTube channel uh, under the name Pop Arena. And the head of this YouTube channel has started a really ambitious project that I've, I've really been enjoying the installments of this. They've got a video series called uh, Knickknacks, uh, where he is trying to do a comprehensive history of every show that ever aired on Nickelodeon going up to the 90s. Dear God, there's a lot of and- those. It's really fascinating. I mean, he's dug up some really interesting shows, some of which I've remembered, some of which I never heard of, and I'm really glad I'm learning about now. Uh, He really does a good job of breaking down the series and of tracking down people, tracking down uh, information on people who who worked on the series. And he also does really good follow-ups. There was... An episode on Pinwheel, I believe it was, where yeah, he, yeah, I remember he was that. doing research on the cast, and he found a picture of one of the cast members sitting in a replica of the time machine from George Powell's adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel. It's like, and it was in like a book about actors. Like, I have no idea what this is from. And then, like, he did a recap episode where he says, hey, I found out where that picture's from. He contributed to a, a satirical book that was a guide to time for time travelers. Uh, and, like, yeah, there was, like, po- photos of time travelers in them, and he was one of them in addition to, like, writing a chapter of the book. Well, so I believe a lot of the... Wasn't a lot of the original Nickelodeon programming either uh, imports from, like, Canada or the UK? Because you had things like... I recall things like Banana Man. Yes, and he does, and he does cover those. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about pinwheel in your pinwheel, pinwheel spinning around. Yeah, I look what I found. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. The history. Um, that's also, what Bill Cosby did. Bill Cosby did picture pages. Was that a Nickelodeon? Uh, yes, that was, was that, that was PBS. a interstitial okay. segment on Nickelodeon. He hasn't he hasn't hit that yet. I see. Well, I have, I have to check that out. I have not thought about Nickelodeon in quite some time, but I watched that quite a lot as a child. Yeah, is Nickelodeon still around? Even I don't. Oh yeah, it's know. it's still around. It's, it's one okay. of those. It's one of those networks. It's one of those networks that kind of killed Saturday morning cartoons because they realized they could make yeah. more money just showing cartoons and the occasional cheaply produced sitcom. I, I quite liked the "Are You Afraid of the Dark" show, and my sister, my younger sister, liked the show "Hey Dude." Um, <laughs> so yeah, a lot of different programming on. And you know, come to think of it, I should. My uh, I'm living right now with my six year old nephew, and he he loves Nick Junior. I guess is the channel hmm. now, right? And TV Land became its own channel as well because they used to show the old sitcoms at night. 
Oh, yes, yes. And with Dick Van Dyke and all that lovely stuff. Okay. So, um, this has been an extended What You're Watching sequence. I just want to close it off on a, a, on a brief discussion about conventions, because Thrasher and I have been to a lot of comic conventions, and I want to pick his brain about this. Um, so, I was uh, yesterday, I, I just went to Rose City Comic Con in Portland, Oregon, and uh, we went to a few panels, and uh, this is a smaller panel here, and unfortunately, uh, they've made the decision to make these panels with the celebrities to be nothing but audience Q&A with no moderator, which I think is horrendous. Yeah, you really need a moderator for that kind of thing. And, and, and why is that? Let's explain it to the audience. Well, one, to keep it organized. Two, to kind of act as a, as a filter. Because, like, when you, when you see hands go up, uh, one of the, part of the moderator's job is essentially to, to not call on the people who are clearly going to waste time or, or, or be pervy. Uh, yeah, and you know, that, that is something that is unfortunate. They didn't do the, the raise hands methods. They instead had uh, two microphones set up in either aisle, and people just started lining up. Oh, yeah, every time I've heard about panels that use that structure, I hear a horror story. Uh, that It's bad, yes, and I, I will... Um, what's, what's one of the worst questions you've heard at a, from an audience panel? <laughs> well, it's never... It's it, well, it, well, any question where there's no discussion, like, did you like X... Or, or a question that the person can't possibly answer, like if it's about like a continuity error or anything. I mean, really, any question that doesn't give you a discussion, but the worst are when the person has a whole preamble and they clearly don't care about their own question. They just want everyone to hear their preamble. Right. Um... Like context, giving, offering a wee bit of context is nice, but whatever comes before your question should not be longer than your question. Correct. I um, I went to a panel with uh, I went to a few panels, but the one this question was so um, I'm not one easily to get offended or to call people and saying something like grossly inappropriate. But this is what I felt about this question. Uh, so it was a panel with Carl Urban, and the panel was called "Carl Urban is that guy in everything" because he was Eomir <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. He was in uh, 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 Thor Ragnarok. He was, uh, we talked about him in um, uh, Chronicles of Riddick. Remember, he was in that show. Oh, He's, yeah. And the new uh, Star He was Trek. in the new Star Trek movies, of course, as Bones McCoy. Um, so, all sorts of, you know, he's been in a lot of stuff. And Judge, the new Judge Dredd movie, which I have not seen, but I've heard is excellent. Um, and, and so the question was, this guy has his, his, ram, his rambling thing. And I'm going to repeat his question. It's not word for word, but it's kind of close. And I want to get what you, your kind of response to it, Thrasher, because I thought it was sort of a disgusting question to ask. They said, you know, Anton Yelchin um, has, you know, recently passed and was Chekhov, and uh, I read a really good theory on the internet that, um, you know, uh, when uh, Gene, the great Gene Roddenberry did the original Star Trek, uh, they originally were meant to be, oh, we're going to have a Russian on the crew because it's someone we feared. And what if they take, you know, like someone we feared now, like a Middle Eastern woman in a turban, and had her play the Chekhov role? I, I think that would be genius. Uh, what would you think of that, Mr. Carl Ehrman? Okay, first off, he's an actor. He's not a fucking writer. Or director or casting producer. Yes, or producer, yeah. But anyway, go on. Well, okay, like th th that is a horribly worded worded question because so mm -hmm. so Star Star Trek has always been diverse. It's been about infinite diversity in infinite combinations. Um, one that is not why Chekhov was on that show. 
Chekhov was added to Star Trek, because keep in mind, he's not in the first season. He was added because right. the networks and the producers kind of insisted you need a younger character to attract a youth audience. and that Which was, is why they cut his hair like the monkeys. Yeah, that was, that was yeah, they, they made him look like as young of a person as you could get on American television. Um, and, and yes, he was made Russian because the idea was to show a future where, you know, Americans and Russians and really people from all over the world could get along. And having a Muslim character on Star Trek, that, that actually would be a pretty cool on two fronts. One, for the diversity, but two, because religion, especially real-world religion, tends to get very underserved on Star Trek. It seems to be a post-religion society in addition to a post-scarcity society. But the guy asking this question, I think he's showing that he doesn't really care he he doesn't care about the way a, the way a Muslim is portrayed because he just goes straight to Middle Eastern Muslim woman in a turban. Well, first that's like the, if you're. If, I, I if think you're that, he did not say turban. He said, "What is the thing? The, um, the hijab wrap? Hijab? Yes. But, oh, he said hijab. Okay. It's 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 again. It shows it, it shows that he he doesn't he doesn't know anything about Islam other than women wear hijabs. Except that is not universally true. Ah, Islam yeah. is not one giant monolithic thing. Exactly. Uh, it, it is. It is just like Christianity has many sects. Uh, sects. Uh, so does Islam. It is still a very diverse faith. Yes, and uh, I, Carl Urban answered it as politely as you could, but watching the expression on his face change as this guy rambled with his question was fascinating. And he's he basically like he he shut the guy down as politely as possible. And, but he said, you know, Chuck, uh, he did say, in his opinion, Chekhov should not be replaced by another actor, but if you were to have someone fill that role, you might as well, they, um, he suggested the, uh, the character that Sophia Patella played in Star Trek Beyond. Oh, okay. Which was paired with, um, Chekhov for a lot of the film, for some of the film, the, uh, the sort of alien they found on the planet that, um... You know what I mean? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that show. Who, who likes the beats and the shouting? Yes, yeah, that's right. Because they kind of have the engineer. Um, so it, and he also said, frankly, and and I, I didn't realize how serious this was. Like there might not be a, another Star Trek film with that cast. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of rumors that there's one in development, but then there's also. Tarantino Star Trek film, which is apparently... And, and someone, unfortunately, had a question about that, which, again, is a bad question to ask. You, you think you're going to get an exclusive at a panel, you idiot? <laughs> you know, right? But he was like, you know, he said... He thought, a Tar- as far as he knew, a Tarantino script hadn't been written, but he had had heard secondhand what the pitch is, and it would be pretty cool. So, who knows what's going to happen? I've heard there's some um, budget negotiations with Star Trek Four. Uh, that are going south, but we'll just have to see. I thought Star Trek Beyond was quite good and much better than the second one. We've discussed it on the show. So, um, all right. Well, that was a sort of a, a lengthy uh, what you're watching. Hope you enjoyed that, listeners. And um, we are going to do our sequel scene. Is that right? Ah, uh, yes, indeed, we are. So, uh, what part do you want to play? This is between Barney and Gunnar. I, I assumed you wanted Barney because you're you're the Stallone guy. Okay, sure, that sounds good. And let's give context for the scene. This is from the opening scene of the film. Correct. Oh, uh, 
No, or is this yeah, later? Well, yeah, there after yeah, some some gunplay almost got Yang uh, killed. Okay, so yeah, this, this is it, like this is like right after the the, the betrayal. <laughs> so it's a, a tender moment between Gunnar and Barney. With the stage direction, Barney has just shot Gunnar after nearly killing Yang. You shot me. You were gonna kill him. I was sorry. Going... That's an awful Stallone. Give me a second. Oh, do you want, um, want to start over? Yeah, let me. All right, yeah, how you doing, Bowie? How you doing? Yeah, okay, we'll just do it. I'm, I'm <laughs> shit at this. Just go. Just you start me. over. You were gonna kill him. I was only trying to scare him. Don't put that on me. I never really liked him. Hey, am I dying? Shot three inches above the heart. I'll take that to say yes. Okay, why my Stallone sounds like a bad John Wayne. I, don't I was about to say, it yeah. sounds like John Wayne. But I, I'll go with it, sure. You are um, going to kill him. <laughs> I can't think of John Wayne without thinking of Kurt Russell's performance in Big Trouble in Little China. I didn't put that on me. I, you never really liked him. Oh, Rocky. Uh, I was trying to do Kenneth Williams. <laughs> my apologies. Um, yeah, so... Um, Next week, tune in to Sequel Cast 2. We will be covering The Expendables 2. What a creative title for a sequel. Um, <laughs> and in case you want to get sort of your, um, you know, your your video collection ready to follow us with what we're doing afterwards, after doing The Expendables trilogy, we will be, um, for October, we will be doing a... Uh, We will be doing a nightmare, uh, wrapping up, uh, in October we'll be wrapping up what we did last year, looking at the Nightmare on Elm Street films. So we'll be looking at Nightmare on Elm Street uh, 6, Freddy's Dead, Wes Craven's A New Nightmare, which is the 7th, and the remake of the original, um, which I think is just called Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, yes. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking Nightmare Before Christmas. My mind went on a strange direction there. And, and we might take, we might dip our toes into Freddy's Nightmares again. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll probably find another Freddy Krueger themed episode. That's what we'll be doing after the Expendables. So if you want to, you know, polish off your copies of the Nightmare on Elm Street films and, and watch those I, to prep as well as the Expendables, I'd highly recommend it. Um, if you have any, you know, we would love to get you know more feedback from fans on this show. The easiest way to reach out to us is uh, you can either send an email, sequelcast at gmail.com, or you can uh, contact us on Twitter at sequelcast2, or we also have a Facebook page we'd love you to like. Just go to uh, Facebook, uh, look up sequelcast2, and uh, hit, the, hit the like or follow button. So um, on Twitter, you can follow me at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me at Internet Mayor. And anything you want to plug, Crasher? Um, not... Well, actually, uh, I'll, I'll just get, uh, get this uh, out of the way. If you are a fan of either live-action role-playing or tabletop role-playing, I have a book for both. Uh, Skirmisher Publishing, uh, this past week, as of this recording, published One Starry Night, which is a role-playing scenario I designed, which is dual-statted for both the Cthulhu Live live-action role-playing system and classic Call of Cthulhu from Chaosium. Hmm. So are you um, was that difficult to do that conversion? Was that a lot of work? Not not really. I mean, uh, Cthulhu Live it was heavily influenced uh, mechanically by by classic uh, Call of Cthulhu. So the the transition's not too difficult. It's really just you know the the patience of having to go through and uh, turn 
uh, turn you know very very basic stat numbers from the LARP into uh, into percentages uh, for uh, for the tabletop version. Did you know uh, the end of October we are getting something called Call of Cthulhu the official video game? Is official going to be part of the title? Unfortunately, yes. I'm not sure why. Isn't HP Lovecraft public domain, or is that a- in contention? HP Lovecraft is pub- in the public domain. Uh, I believe virtually all of his concepts are also in the public domain. Um, it, it, they're sort of there at the seventies. There was sort of a gentleman's agreement that people would honor August Durlith's copyrights to the reprints of Lovecraft's work uh, that he had been put out. But when it comes, but when it comes down to it, you really don't need any any permission. I can only assume that they're doing that because it's directly based on the Call of Cthulhu role playing game, which it itself is not in the public domain. As it turns out, that, that is that is correct, and in fact, they're working with writers who have written scenarios for that original eighty one um, Call of Cthulhu role playing game. Ooh, I hope Sandy Peterson's involved. Um. Yeah, I don't have time to look that up, but yeah, it, it's uh, being developed by um, Cyanide, who have worked on such games as Horse Racing Manager. That's unfortunate. Um, well, you know, we already had this game that was called uh, was called Call of Cthulhu: Dark Corners of the Earth. Uh, yeah, from about ten years ago. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna have Call of like it, the subtitle I feel like should be something atmospheric. It should be better than a legal statement about whether it's officially licensed. Well, these developers have done some. Um, they did a few recent Space Hulk uh, games. Oh yeah. Um, so it, it, they have some sort of a pedigree. Uh, so should be, and, and they're working on a Werewolf Apocalypse uh, game as well. So huh. good on them. Uh, should be something that we like HP Lovecraft around here at Sequelcast too. So uh, should be cool. And yeah, please. Uh, uh, write and give us, you know, reviews on iTunes and whatever podcast uh, thing you listen to us. You can also listen to us on Stitcher at stitcher.com streaming is another way to listen to us. So, uh, and, and you can get one starry night on drivethroughrpg.com. Very good. So, for uh, Sequelcast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. This is not my bird. Which is a quote from a different Mickey Rourke role from the same year. Iron Man 2. Yes. <laughs> okay, and what do you want as the music? I guess that, that song that had expendables in the lyrics. Okay, yeah. Okay.